0: Baron Munchausen was a German nobleman and an officer in the Russian army and he fought for the Russian Empire in the late 18th century. Uh, Rudolf Raspa was an author and contemporary of Munchausen and he invented a fictional character and named him Baron Munchausen. Raspa did this to, of course, poke fun at the real baron because of the baron's outra- outrageous tall tales and uh, all the stories he told about his military exploits that were not totally true. Raspa's fictional character was known for writing cannonballs, uh, fighting 40-foot alligators, flying to the moon, and so forth, just to uh, poke fun at this, this baron who liked to uh, fabricate stories. Of course, the comedy, it was a comedy, it was designed to highlight the absurdity and inconsistency of the real Munchausen stories. Illustrating the growing normalcy of dishonesty in our culture, the the whole premise of the 1950s and 60s TV show, To Tell the Truth, was deception. I don't know if any of you remember that show, but the contestants would do their best to deceive a panel of judges and the studio audience and the winner of the show would be the person who did the best job of deception. Now, uh, these may not seem like big deals to us, but since when have we become accustomed to deception as a way of life? Well, I want to tell you that if there's one thing that's an identifying mark of human depravity, it's this, that we are used to deceiving one another. We learned to lie at a very young age to protect ourselves, to promote ourselves, That habit works its way into our lives and we normally carry it on until the day we die We lie at home at work at church in politics pretty much everywhere. We live we lie and are accustomed to hearing lies Um, You might say well, I'm not a liar and I'm gonna ask you a simple question. What does it take to qualify as a liar? How many lies do you have to tell before you're a liar? Let me ask you another question then might clear it up for you. How many murders do you have to commit before you're a murderer? Right? So as, as difficult as hearing these things are, I, I want to tell you this. James, in the book we're in today, we've been in for a while, James is desiring with this one felled swoop to include all of us today. And he does so Because he's talking about tests of authentic faith. You know, we may have been able to avoid this test or that test or the other test because we don't fit into those specific categories that are being tested. It's evident from your experience and mine and from the truth of Scripture that we are all included in this one. We are all part of the human race who's identified by their dishonesty. Kent Hughes wrote this in his commentary on this particular part of scripture. There was a time when Western culture was distinguished from other cultures by at least a conventional consensus that one ought to be telling the truth. But now there is a pervasive indifference to truth-telling which has not only infected day-to-day conversation, but the most solemn pledges of life. Perjury under solemn oath is epidemic. The sacred vows of marriage are broken almost as frequently as they are pledged, and God's name is daily invoked by blatant liars as witness to their truthfulness. We got a problem, don't we, in our culture? A way that we have tried to compensate for this problem, for this problem of dishonesty that is pervasive, is the invention of oaths. We, we use oaths to try to convince one another that what we are currently saying is really actually true. We, we say things like, I swear to God, or I swear on my mother's grave, or I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. We have legal contracts, promissory notes, credit card agreements, which are all mechanisms that are forced or used to force us to keep our word. They're all based on the premise that we are fundamentally dishonest. My word is my bond, it doesn't work anymore. Right? We want you to sign a document. And if you don't keep your word, it'll cost you. Right? This is what we're used to. It's like breathing to us anymore. I want you to turn with me to James chapter 5, and we're going to look at just one verse today, verse 12. James 5 12. James says this but above all my brothers do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation the command of verse 12 is um, the first of many that James will close his letter with he's coming to the conclusions we're getting towards the end we've we've been in this book for almost a year now and we're coming to an end and we're James is beginning to wind this thing down and with it he is going to kind of give some staccato commands for us to keep in mind and pay attention to as we go our way if James wouldn't have included these words in verse 12 above all we may have been able to squeeze them into the last sermon or maybe include them in the next sermon but when he uses the prioritizing words above all it requires us to take a little more careful look at this verse. Think about what he's saying. Above all, be honest. He's saying this after he said everything that we know he has said about the Christian life. This is shocking to us. This particular command is more important than all the others that he has already said. Seems to be. Today I want to, explain, I want to investigate why this is. As we have noted before James has a has had a keen concern for the speech of those who claim Christ if you remember he has addressed the tongue in every single chapter of this book the the tongue of the Christian is of great concern to James he's saying more than anything else in the Christian life your tongue reveals your heart and he's at it again here today with this focus on honesty controlling the tongue is a key to identifying authentic faith and so how James ties this verse into his collection of tests of authentic faith which make up this book uh, is that speech whether honest or dishonest is a barometer of a spirit transformed life do you want to know if God is actually at work in your life pay attention to what comes out of your mouth is what James is saying. How people speak is one of the things that most reveals the true condition of the heart. So his teaching here in 512 is a sweeping call to radical truthfulness. And if we pay attention, if we heed this call, it will set us apart from the rest of the world who is used to what I've just described. And by the way, if we're radically truthful, it may get us into trouble at times. But radical truthfulness will build confidence in our lives it'll bring refreshing grace to a confused world and it will be a powerful evangelistic tool for every Christian who maintains honesty so what I want to show you this morning is the problem of dishonesty I want to also show you the solution to dishonesty and then some amazing benefits of honesty all right So let's dive into this. The first point I want to show you here from the text is the problem of dishonesty. The problem of dishonesty didn't start in James' day. It it began in the Old Testament. And so I want to take you back to the Old Testament so you can see why James includes it in his tests of authentic faith. The problem here in the Old Testament is clear. Back in the Old Testament day, Israel were encouraged to make vows in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 20 for example Moses said this to them you shall fear the Lord your God you shall serve him and hold fast to him and by his name you shall swear and so they were encouraged to make vows to God and to each other based on God but they're also forbidden to break vows and this is there's quite a few records of this in the Old Testament but let me read for you just numbers chapter 30 verse 2 If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So, as much as God encouraged the vow-making of his people, he discouraged and forbade breaking vows. So, you better mean what you say when you vow something. But the ancient Jews became masters of deception through misleading vows or misleading oaths. They they would need lawyers to interpret oaths and oral contracts to make sure there was no wiggle room to get out of a promise made. They would pretend truthfulness but say or write things in such ways as to allow for a backdoor escape if things got a little hot. People would swear and promise by their own life, by their mother's grave, by their health, or by some random object, but intentionally leave off God's name so that if things got tough, they could back out of it. In fact, the rabbis became very detailed. That is, the teachers of the law became very detailed in their teaching on oaths and devoted an entire section of the Mishnah, which is a commentary on the five books of the law. They... they, they devoted an entire section of the Mishnah to a discussion concerning oaths. And in that section of the Mishnah, it be, they used it as a guide for when and how people could deceive others and get away with it legitimately. That was in their teaching. This began to, of course, undermine society. People had a hard time being in business or buying or selling anything or just being in regular relationships because they never knew if someone was actually trying to deceive them or sell them a bill of goods, or say something that they can get out of later. This became so commonplace, that it destroyed Jewish society. The problem was that they had figured out a way to undermine integrity, but maintain a facade of truthfulness. Evasive swearing became a fine art. Let me give you an example. One rabbi taught that if you swore by Jerusalem, you were not bound to your oath, but if you swore facing Jerusalem, you were bound. So I could promise you, I will pay you $5,000 for your car, but if I wasn't facing Jerusalem when I promised that, I could take your car and our vow would be null. That's how crazy this became in Old Testament days. And there was law after law after guideline after guideline that directed people, and they had spent all their time interpreting these things just to make sure they weren't getting ripped off. The custom of making oath was a major part of biblical life in Old Testament times. And by the time James wrote his letter in the first century, this oath deception had become a problem in the church. So let's look at the problem in James' day. When James says there in verse 12, above all, brothers, do not swear... He isn't referring to the, something that we might think of in our culture. He wasn't talking about filthy language or, or dirty jokes. That kind of language is prohibited elsewhere in, in the scriptures. But James is referring to something else. As I just mentioned, the, the, the type of swearing that James has in mind was a common practice in his day and in the Old Testament times. In fact, if you read through the Old Testament, you come across oaths occasionally. You ever heard of the Nazarite vow? These people would promise to live a certain way and abstain from certain things for a period of time. It was called the Nazarite vow. The vows that the people of Israel took to obey God, they all vowed together, corporately. We will obey. It was a corporate oath. God himself made vows to his people, recorded all over Scripture. Numbers 14, Isaiah 49, even New Testament, Luke 1. But back then there were no legal contracts. All they had were oral agreements. So it's important that you understand what's going on here in Old Testament times in James' day so that it makes sense to us today. One thing that I want you to make sure you hear is that James isn't forbidding any oath-making. The oaths that, that we make at our wedding ceremonies are good and honorable to God. Our church covenant is an oath that we promise one another, how we'll behave with each other. What James is forbidding is language that is used to deceive or mislead someone intelligently or taking an oath flippantly, like, for example, our church covenant. Oh, we do this every year. Let's just read it and get it over with. That would be a flippant use of our covenant, of our oath. Jesus said this in Matthew 5 concerning these things. And again, Jesus is referring to what's going on in the Jewish society in his day. He goes, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform uh, to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is by the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is of his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So he goes through, and he's actually picking things out of the Mishnah that have been used by the people to get out of promises. And do not take any oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair of your head of your hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So when we read the story of Acts 5, which you just had read to you this morning, and you hear about Ananias and Sapphira dying because they misrepresented what they gave, it shocks us in our day, doesn't it? It's like, what in the world? I'm glad that that doesn't happen in our church, right? How many of us would survive the day if that kind of thing happened in our church? Well, and you would say, well, after all, they, they, they gave uh, to the apostle Peter a gift. It seemed like a small infraction. They simply misrepresented the percentage of the gift they had received. And because of this white lie, they paid with their lives. And so we would say, why the death penalty for such a small thing? Well, the point that the Holy Spirit was making to the church in Peter's day, and what James is saying here for us today, is that the church will struggle as long as its members interact deceptively. As long as you and me are okay with misleading one another, we will pay for it significantly. Deception among Christians deeply wounds the body of Christ. It is a sin against one another. It's a sin against God. And I want to convince you that it greatly hampers our evangelistic efforts. Why would someone want to come and join us if we're no different than the rest of the world? We lie just like they do. Come on, we're a bunch of liars. Let's invite all the other liars that we know. Christians, James is saying, Jesus is saying, should at least be truthful. When people come here, they should be able to count on honesty. James is saying that oath taking and oath making should be unnecessary for Christians because all of our speech should be honest, right? Christians, according to the New Testament, ought to have integrity. Your no should mean no, your yes should mean yes. So James and Jesus aren't teaching some obscure truth, some new truth. Uh, it's very simple, and here it is. Be sure your speech is honest and straightforward. That's the teaching. It's it's telling that we have to have an entire sermon to talk about it. And you say, well, you're the one who decided, right? (laughs) Well, I think what we're talking about is significant. We need to make sure that we're not communicating through innuendo, inappropriate sarcasm, or any kind of deception. Our speech should not be vague and difficult to follow. This isn't just true of preachers and teachers, but of all of us in this room we need to make sure that our communication is easy to understand and doesn't easily mislead. It doesn't, we don't need to read between the lines to try to determine what is being said. When we use words and phrases that are vague, the possibility of misunderstanding increases, of course, and when misunderstanding increases, the possibility of sin increases. How many in here have ever had a difficult time conversing accurately over email or text. All of us, right? We, we have a hard time communicating because we, what, is, what does this person really mean uh, by this text? I, th- I think they mean this. They, there's probably a sentence in between this one and that one that they're probably not saying but it really is there. I mean, we all struggle with these kind of things. Those with authentic faith, James is saying, should be known for speech that's honest, it's clear, Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is what Paul said to the Ephesians, therefore, having put away falsehood, having put away deception, having put away misleading truths or untruths, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now let's, with that background, let's look at how we're affected today by this problem. In the same way that the ancient Jews would intentionally form their vows to leave room to get out of an agreement, we might say, ah, oh, it doesn't count, I had my fingers crossed. You remember doing that in junior high? We still do that, here's how we do it today. Oh, you must have misunderstood me, you must have misunderstood me. I had my fingers crossed, by the way. You know, that's kind of how we work it in our adult world. Now I'd like to think that we don't intentionally deceive one another, but I understand that we do struggle with embellishing truth. With allowing others to believe something that really isn't ac- actually accurate, we know we paid more for our home or our car that we want to admit we didn't actually get as good as deals we brag about. Our stories are about our past are much more fantastic than oral than actual history. The older we get, the better we were. Sometimes I think we are modern-day Mancoshens. Well. George MacDonald, 19th century pastor and author, uh, wrote to his dad and he identified this problem uh, in his own life. And I think that you'll resonate with this. He says, I always try, I think I do, to be truthful. All the same, I tell a great many petty lies. Things like that I mean one thing to myself, though another another to other people. But I do not think lightly of it. Where I am more often wrong is in tacitly pretending I hear things which I do not, especially jokes and good stories, the point of which I always miss. Uh, but, seeing, but seeing everyone laugh, I too laugh for the sake of not looking like a fool. My respect for the world's opinion is my greatest stumbling block I fear. Anybody resonate with that? Um, I know I do. The thing that's frightening to me is how easily we fall into this and how tragic it is that we pass it off with a shrug saying, everybody does that. That's what's concerning to me. You've heard it said to err is human, but we believe to lie is human, so we say it's okay. Being totally truthful is challenging for all of us, no matter who you are, but this is the one with authentic faith is called to do. We claim Christ, right? We, we claim to, to submit to the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. We, we claim to be his and he ours. This ought to be a reflection of our lives as Christians. This is what James is saying in a nutshell. Uh, Dr. Helmut Thielik said this. Whenever I utter the formula I swear by or to God, I'm really saying now that I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that ordinarily overrun my speech. In fact, he continues, I'm saving even more than I'm saying even more than this. I'm saying that people are expecting me to lie from the start. And just because they are counting on my lying, I have to bring up all these big guns of oaths and words of honor. No, really. I swear to God I'm telling you the truth. We're saying, I know you normally don't believe me, but this time, please do. James and Jesus' point is that all of our speech must have equal truthfulness. We should never have to swear to anything about the truthfulness about what we're saying or going to say. We are called to radical truthfulness in a deceptive world. Let's look at the solution to dishonesty that we find in scripture. Starting here in the text, we know that we cannot control our neighbors or our politicians for that matter, but we should be able to control ourselves, theoretically, right? We should be able to control ourselves. Well, let's look at this and see what the solution might be to our struggle with honesty. First is this, understand God's condemnation. Understand God's condemnation. Now, why do we want our speech to be marked by honesty and clarity? Because of what's said at the end of verse 12. Look what it says. These are pretty strong words. So that you may not fall under condemnation. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you're not condemned. If that doesn't wake you up, if that's not smelling salts, what will? Might be a good question. The word condemnation here, though, listen, hear me out. The word condemnation used in verse 12 is a serious one, but it is never used in all of Scripture referring to Christians. This is good news. Referring to those who have been authentically saved who have authentic faith. This word is never used towards them James isn't referring to fatherly discipline here of God's people He's referring to the condemnation and judgment on those who have uh, No authentic faith and demonstrate that by their habitual deceptive language So here's the test if you're looking at your life, if you're paying attention to what you're saying, and more often than not, you're not being completely honest with people around you, there's a good chance that the faith you claim isn't authentic. And if, the keeps, if those untruths or half-truths keep coming out of your mouth, then condemnation waits, is what James is saying. So one way to, to uh, solve the dishonesty problem if you don't know Christ is to consider the coming condemnation if you continue. That's pretty drastic. Let me say something that I've said often as we've gone through this uh, sermon series in James. I am not preaching Christian perfection. The Bible does not teach Christian perfection. Even though you know Christ, even though you've been given a new heart, guess what? You still struggle with sin. Have you discovered that yet, Christian? I think the person sitting next to you has discovered it. We all sin. We all struggle with sin. Read the first chapter of 1 John. That's not the point. The New Testament does not teach perfection at all. Every Christian knows they sin and fall into it from time to time. But this test of faith is intended to identify a consistent trajectory of life and a habit of misleading people. If this is you, beware, James says. When you mislead or lie to someone, the question is, not if you've ever done that, but when you do, do you make it right? Do you call the individual, meet with the individual and confess your sin and acknowledge what you have done? The one with authentic faith will be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's guidance in this department. They will steer away from deceptive speech as much as possible. But when they do fail, they'll acknowledge their sin and make it right. Those without authentic faith will continue to deceive, continue to mislead. And James says their condemnation is waiting. So that's the first thing I need you to consider if we're going to solve dishonesty in our lives, secondly is this, second thing we can do is this, understand God's grace. This is always better. I'm, I'm sure you know that. Grace is always better than condemnation, isn't it? Do you agree with that? Uh, I know you do. James has been teaching that genuine faith changes things. If there's one thing <laughs> that we could take away from the book of James, it's that. If you are authentically, sa- authentically saved, if you have genuine saving faith, things are different. Those who possess the Spirit of God, those who have been regenerated from their old way of life to the new, those who are Christians, truly, authentically Christians, are different. We have a new heart. In... Uh, Colossians the the Apostle Paul taught um, that this very thing that when you when the Holy Spirit comes into your life things begin to change at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3 he says that if you have been raised with Christ or since you've been raised with Christ like we heard earlier in the day Colossians 3 9 and 10 he says this since you've been raised with Christ do not lie to one another So one of the first things that comes out of Paul's mouth, the first thing that comes into his mind is when you have been converted, when you have experienced grace, what comes out of your mouth changes. It's one of the first things on Paul's mind. He says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. In other words, lying is part of the old self and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. So if God has regenerated your soul, you will grow in truthfulness. There's no escaping it. So understanding God's grace simply means this. If you've embraced Christ, you ought to see progression in your spiritual life. You ought to see growth in truthfulness. Not a decline or, or or a contentment with living in the swamp of dishonesty. Let me me share with you some benefits that come with practicing honesty that James is instructing. First of all this, honesty empowers our evangelism. Honesty empowers our evangelism. In speaking about evangelism, the apostle Paul expects us to speak truthfully to those outside the church. He says this in Ephesians 4, 14 and 15. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's the swamp I'm talking about. We're no longer influenced by that. And then he says this in verse 15. Rather, rather, those of you who have Christ, who've experienced grace, speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So friends, if we're going to be speaking the truth to one another, if we're going to be speaking the truth to those outside these walls who need Christ, that is a powerful evangelistic tool. How refreshing is it for someone to be honest with us? It's not common in our day. Our friend Helmut again says this, The avoidance of one small fib may be a stronger confession of faith than a whole Christian philosophy championed in lengthy, forceful discussion. I'm glad you know theology, but can you speak truthfully? Is what he's saying? He's saying this is a powerful tool for evangelism. Nobody really wants to know about your God if it doesn't affect your life. Right? Truthfulness is a great evangelistic tool. To those weaned on deception, lies, and misrepresentation, the truth is as refreshing as a high mountain spring. The world is starving for honest and straightforward talk. And how refreshing is it to encounter raw honesty? And I'm not talking about gossiping about each other's failures or being rude to one another. That's not the truth that we're encouraged to freely share. In fact, we're encouraged to cover one another's sins, aren't we, to promote peace in the body of Christ? What James and Paul and Jesus are expecting is simple, plain honesty. That's it. Honesty empowers our evangelism. Next, honesty strengthens relationships. I could could defend that statement by just saying this. Uh, how has dishonesty helped your relationships? It doesn't, does it? No. So the opposite is obviously true. Honesty strengthens relationships and it brings confidence to life. If I am convinced that those who love me will always be truthful with me, I have a strong fortress against the enemy. That's why we're to speak the truth to one another, that's why we're to be in each other's lives. If you will be truthful with me and I'll be truthful with you, guess what? We'll encourage each other. We'll be partners in this spiritual pilgrimage that we are all on. I need people like that in my life. You need people in your life like that. So how can we work on our no's being no and our yes's being yes? How can we work on everyday honesty? Let me give you a few ideas. Remember the damage of deception in the church. You know, deception, misleading, these kind of things tear down relationships within the church as, as anywhere. But especially in the church, because we, we believe and hope that each of us are committed to honesty. And so when we are dishonest or we deceive in the church, it has substantial ramifications, negative ones next remember what Jesus said about words You remember what he said out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks remember that whatever comes out of your mouth is a reflection of your heart it's not oh I'm sorry for what I said I was tired or oh I'm sorry for what I said it was you know it was a long day or it was too hot no it's a reflection of the heart every time not just when it's hot or you've had a long hard day so remember what Jesus said about words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Based on your words, what is the condition of your heart, friend? Thirdly, remember the presence of the Holy Spirit should impact our speech. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Remember that in Galatians 5? All these things that reflect honesty, transparency, and so forth. If the Holy Spirit is, in fact, in our lives it will become evident to those watching us. And then finally, remember that the word of God will wash our words. Do you need your words washed? Do you need um, a washing of the Holy Spirit over your language? And I don't mean foul language, that of course too, but I'm talking about just simple honesty. Well, the Bible tells us that um, the word of God is what cleans us up. Jesus said sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. So the way we become more like Jesus, including in our talk, who never said one wrong word, by the way, Jesus never said one wrong word. When we, the more we become like him, it's because we spend time with him in his word. You know why the, the Jewish leaders um, were impressed with Peter and James and John when they interrogated them in Acts 4? They knew that these guys were fishermen, untrained, and yet they were impressed. Why? Remember what it said in verse verse 13? Because they had been with Jesus. Friends, being with Jesus transforms us. Let the word of Christ, let the word of Jesus Christ dwell in you richly. It will wash over your language. It will wash over what comes out of your mouth. It will filter what comes out of your mouth. So spend time in the Word and pray that God will do His sanctifying work through the Word on your lips. The psalmist was concerned about this very thing. In Psalm 141, verse 3, he said, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Why? Because it can get away from me. (laughs) I can say things that I don't want to say. So as we grow in Christ and become more and more like Jesus, who was always honest, we're gonna slip occasionally. But Jesus, who is the friend of sinners, will be quick to pick us up because he loves us and gave himself for us. Friends, the grace of God is an amazing, powerful reality in the life of every single Christian. Because we know we fail, we know we blow it at times. But to know that the one who is the judge, the only one who is the judge, forgives grants pardon 100% of the time. He'll be quick to embrace us as the father of the prodigal son was quick to embrace his returning son. A good thing to remember as you struggle, and it is a struggle, believe me, this is a struggle. Um, One of the things that will help you in this struggle to have your words reflect the words of Christ and, and the presence of the Holy Spirit is to remember that that God has begun a good work in you, all right? It's it's a process. What you will be is not what you are, but what you are is not what you were, right? We are all hopefully seeing progression in Christ-likeness. It says in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you, that is the God who began a good work in you, he, he converted your soul, he gave you a new heart, he's starting to sanctify, cleanse you, even your language completely He says, he who began it will complete it one day. So look forward to that day. Let's encourage one another towards that day. Let's walk with each other towards that day. Friends, our words are are critically important. James says, above all, brothers, be honest with each other. Be honest, don't make things up. Don't try to impress people. Let's just be honest with each other. And we'll be much further along in bringing in the kingdom of God, not only in our lives, but the lives of those around us. Pray with me if you would. Lord, I ask for help now for each and everyone in this room who struggles with this, and I know we all do. Our mouths seem to be one of the primary areas of needed sanctification. Help us, Lord, to be radically truthful. Help us to be attentive to the words we speak Keep us from the insecurity that causes us to speak in such ways that makes people think something of us that isn't true. Strengthen us so that our words are a source of hope, encouragement, joy, and refreshment to all who listen. Father, I pray that you would use our honest speech to bring glory to your son, Jesus Christ. And that our honest speech would be used by you, by your spirit, to bring our lost friends to Jesus Christ. Father, for his glory, the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ, who died for us, who is working in us through his spirit to bring about Christ-likeness, we give all the glory and praise. Bless us now in his name. Amen.